you remember Ian Coates? We had him on here a while ago. No map, no plan. After 14 years on the road, without an incident, he returns home only to fall through the barn floor, breaking his hip. And then afterwards, he finds out that his precious Honda Africa twin motorcycle has been stolen. And in Ian's mind, he was safer on the road than he was at home. Now, while that may not be completely accurate for everyone, it may have some validity. And after speaking with several world travelers that have spent many years on the road, it seems that the threat of having your bike or gear stolen may not be as high as you think. Today, we get some tips from those world travelers and some methods that should help keep your gear and your bike safe while traveling. And this one's jam-packed with some good information, including the value of using alarms, invisible cloaks, and brothels to protect your ride. This is Nick Sanders. I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa Morris. My name is Austin Vince. This is Rob Beach. I'm Rachel. This is Ed March. This is Glenn Hickstead. This is Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. This is Dave Barr. This is Alan Carl. This is Tiffany Coates. Hello, here is Herbert Schwartz. I'm Brett Tax. This is Zoe Cano. This is Nathan Millward. My name is Graham Hoskins. This is Joe Russ. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. It's Simon Pavey here. Hi, this is Grant Johnson. This is Robert Wicks. This is Elisa Workler. <laughs> this is Ted Simon. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Traveling on a long trip in a foreign country or even a short trip in your own backyard, bike security is always an issue. Whether you're parking at the store that you normally go to or you're somewhere that you're just visiting, you usually look around your bike and check it all over to make sure that everything is intact and you've done what you can to make sure that your bike remains untouched and intact. And let's face it, a bike is easy prey for a thief. It's completely exposed with every accessory and bolt-on available to touch and prod if anybody chooses to. And even the bike itself can easily be picked up by a group of people and shoved into the back of a waiting truck, never to be seen again. And a stolen bike is, is often readily broke down into parts and sold off as, as in bits and pieces or maybe used to build another bike. I One time I parked in front of a large library to do some research, and when I came back out, my bike was missing a side cover. Yet most of the time, when I park, at least around home, I don't even lock my helmet to the handlebars. I just leave it sit there, and no one ever touches a thing. However, not long ago, I read a story about someone traveling on the, one of the BC ferries and they were comfortable leaving their bike sitting there because everything was locked up, although fully exposed. Their GPS was locked to their handlebars and couldn't be easily removed. When they came back, they found that their GPS had been vandalized. The screen was all scratched up and rendered the GPS useless and obviously an expensive chunk of gear. 
And it's stories like this that can easily trigger the paranoia in us. But I think that has to be tempered with the fact that most people ride bikes every day, parking them in mall parking lots, grocery stores, long-term parking, train stations, etc., etc., without running into a problem. Now, that doesn't mean we should be less diligent in our quest for safety. In fact, it's that quest for safety, in part at least, that keeps our bikes safe and keeps these stories few and far between. If we all got cavalier and left the keys in our ignition and all of our things sitting about, I think you could well imagine where that may lead. Today, we're going to hear from several experienced world travelers. We're going to get their take on keeping your bike and gear safe and learn what they have learned through the School of Hard Knocks. We'll begin with Sam Manicom. Sam is an author and writer who has spent eight years traveling the world on his motorcycle. And Sam learned to keep his gear safe using some fairly simple methods, but things that you stick to. It's a bit of a regimen. Sam, welcome back. Always good to hear your voice. Hello, Jim. It's really good to be back with you. Thanks for inviting me. So with securing your bike, when we're traveling, bike security is obviously a big thing. Uh, you know, the thing is, in my mind, I, I think bikes are really, anybody is really obvious when you come into a new area that, when I say obvious, it's obvious that you're a traveler. I mean, there's your bike loaded up with all your gear on the outside. And this is the thing we love about motorcycling is the fact that we're so approachable and that we're so open that when we come in, hey, you get what you see right there. You're, you're a traveler and it's very obvious you're a traveler. But that opens you up to the possibility of having a problem. And that's where bike security comes in. Um, yeah, do you know, before I set off on my trip, um, a very enlightened chap said to me, do you know, if you can make it across Europe without anything being stolen, you'll make it around the world without anything being stolen. And um, in the eight years that I was on the road, I had one thing stolen. Well, hang on a second. Let's let's qualify that because is that one thing stolen because you were diligent about the way you handled yourself and the way you secured your bike? Or do you feel that the uh, the fear of losing something, or having your bike stolen maybe is, is not uh, as big as people make it look to be? <laughs> do you know, um, the thing that I actually had stolen um, was stolen because I was stupid. Um, I stopped concentrating for a moment and it served me right. Um, I put my camera down while I was in conversation and focusing on something else. And I like to think that the camera that was stolen ended up feeding a family um, and um, for at least a week. Uh, it served me right. I should have kept my attention going. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of security when you're on the road is down to common sense. Um, you mix it in with, uh, with two forms of respect, actually. The first is that you know that you're in an environment where you're a stranger and you just don't know how things work. So when you're um, fully aware of that, then all of your senses are firing on all cylinders. So you're not making yourself vulnerable. And the other thing is respecting the fact that most local people aren't thieves and actually they have a vested interest in helping you um, and helping keep you safe. I think that most people in the world are actually pretty decent people and they're delighted to see you traveling in their country, whether it's first world or developing world. And the vast majority of people just aren't villains. But you'd be daft if um, you didn't pay attention to the fact that, yeah, there are some villains out there. Um, and I suppose I became a lot more philosophical about having things stolen and awareness because in the end... I decided that nothing that I owned was worth the value of my life. And so long as I'd used common sense and backed things up and, you know, like paperwork and so on, then, well, people could take what I'd got. It, it really, really wasn't important. 
but of course I'm always underlining that with actually you know I can't afford to lose anything so I better be careful <laughs> well the, you, you were saying about your camera you were hoping or you like to imagine that it, that it fed a family for a week that's really your your sort of I get think defense um, so you don't feel that loss right Yes. Do you know, I think the thing that I felt the loss the most over was that um, this is in the days of film and I had a 36 shot film in there and I had 35 shots in there and I'd only been using that film for my bike in really unusual places. So I had um, a couple of um, Buddhist monks sitting on the back of the bike at one stage. Um, another shot was the bike upside down in a ditch with two Indian policemen helping pull it out of the ditch. You know, things like that. It's just those unique shots that you, you really, really value because, um, well, for starters, it's happened. And second, you've been smart enough at that moment to take that photograph that, um, well, I mean, I don't about you, but I fall off my bike and when I fall off my bike I always forget to take a photograph of the bike lying on its side I'm always too busy picking the bike up so um, lo losing that film was the thing that was the most difficult thing about that the rest of it well I just accepted that I've been silly and it served me right what you're saying is that you do have to be diligent. You are being careful as you travel. You do have your, your personal rules or parameters that you work in to try and keep things safe and secure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mentioned respect. Well, respect really works. And I, I, people are afraid of, of, of things going wrong, of things being stolen and so on. But I always say to people, listen, swap that word fear for respect. Because if you're afraid of what can go wrong, Actually, you're making yourself vulnerable because people, um, the villains, will, will sense your fear and that makes you vulnerable. Yet if you respect that you're in a dodgy situation, it's not, a, it's not fear anymore. So you're not oozing that, that sense of vulnerability. Does that make sense? Wow, that is really, really good. Yes, that, that makes perfect sense. Well, when you're traveling, what sort of things do you do? Let's not talk about fastening the bike down or doing something like that. Overall, what sort of things do you do to protect yourself or, or to be respectful? Well, I'm, I'm going to mention one other thing on the, on the fear factor because this also um, can affect how safe you're staying. You meant, I mentioned earlier on that um, people normally want to help keep you safe. If you're afraid, then you're running the risk of being rude, insulting even, and that can often turn off the people, the very people who actually want to help keep you safe. So that fear of, of things going wrong um, fear for your security actually is a really, really dangerous thing. But I think I've bagged on enough about that. Um, so what do I do? Well, I mean, for money and valuables, I, I do the usual things like, you know, stash um, the, the, my money in as many different places as I can because I always work on the theory that if somebody's going to rob me, then um, let them take what they can get away with. Um, but hopefully they're not going to find everything that I've got stashed. So you know, I have things in the mainframe of my bike and in various places in my luggage and shoulder pads in my bike jacket and all of those sorts of things. And that way I'm not going to be worrying about that. It's, it's more a case of being um, philosophical. Um, there are a couple of things that I make a point of doing with personal security um, and that's I always carry um, a leather slash proof belt pouch 
and I'm in that I put my passport and my journal um, and my my wallet and those sorts of things because I've got that on my belts then I'm never going to put it down it's not something that somebody can cut off in a hurry or grab and run away with and again that peace of mind means that I can be more relaxed in a potentially tense situation the other thing that I do is I always carry um, a walk away bag and in that walk away bag I'll have my camera and my paperwork for example my carnet de passage my medical certificates those sorts of things because if I have to walk away from the bike in a hurry um, because something's gone wrong then I can grab that bag and I can go and everything that is vital to me is is in there and again I carry a leather one it's slash proof and um, although the strap is um, soft and comfortable because you can be walking around with a fair bit of weight in it, I've threaded a, a good-sized core of wire through the strap so nobody can walk up behind me with a sharp knife and slash that um, strap and uh, grab the bag and do a runner. Um, so it's, it's little things like that again. A lot of, for me, the security of things is actually making myself feel comfortable and that I've done the best that I possibly can in a, a potentially dodgy situation. Yeah, the walkaway bag, I think, is a great tip for most of us. I hadn't thought about that at all, but that makes perfect sense. But the thing that I was going to ask you about, though, is, is the slash proof. I, this this comes up a lot where people talk about having bags that are slash proof or, or maybe not walking around with your backpack, your rucksack on your back, you put on the front mm-hmm. so someone can't come up. Is it that big of a problem, the slashing? It depends where you are. Um, I've never, ever had anybody attempt to do it to me. And I've been traveling since I was 16 years old and I'm, yeah, a bit older than that now. So (laughs) I've bounced around some dodgy places and I've never, ever had anybody try and slash my bags. But you hear of it and you meet people who have had it. Um, Maybe I'm just lucky or maybe I'm just ugly enough for people not to want to bother. Well, especially when you're saying you put a, a wire through the strap to make sure that it's slash proof. I mean, it strikes me that that's, that has to be something that's of a pretty high concern. I met people in Panama who'd been in um, Colón, um, which is one of the dodgiest um, cities in Central America. And um, this chap had um, had his um, bags slashed open as he was walking. Um, and yeah significant value stolen out of the bag and he said the thing that amazed him the most was that he wasn't aware that the bag had been slashed open somebody had been walking along behind him with a razor sharp knife and had just slit open the bag um, and had been pulling stuff out that sort of sends shivers down my spine just the fact of somebody walking up and and slashing the bag with their whole their sole uh, purpose just to try and get your valuables out and probably not really worrying too much about where that knife hits i think that that can happen in some places there are some dodgy parts of the world um but you know the the, the chances of you being in the wrong place at the wrong time, doing the wrong thing, that combination I think is fairly remote. Yes, you can find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, Sometimes you have to go there. For example, this guy was in Cologne because he was arranging um, shipping for his bike and that's where he had to go to do it. Um, But doing the wrong thing when you're in a place like that, I think that from the sounds of it, he was doing the wrong thing in that he wasn't carrying his bag in front of him as he was walking. He had it slung over over his shoulder, so it was behind him. It was out of sight. And a villain's going to have picked up on that and thought, right, this guy's not paying attention. Let's see what I can get away with. 
And it's probably a good time to to just mention now that this can happen anywhere. This doesn't have to be in some place when you're traveling. It could happen to you very well in London. Mm, no, absolutely. Absolutely. No, without doubt. And and that I'm really glad that you said that because it can happen anytime, anywhere. Um, but the chances are fairly small, I think. I mean, how many millions of people have, um, are there on this earth and how many times do people actually get robbed? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And especially people like yourself who've done so much traveling and you're saying, you're, I mean, the camera stolen. I mean, it's such a minor thing. Mm. I mean, oh, in the big scheme of things, I realize it was a big deal for you, and and it certainly is a big deal. I mean, if it's a you know expensive camera, um, it's uh, it, it certainly is a big deal. But but that brings to mind another thing that that I was going to ask you about was what about considering what you're taking to begin with? Because quite often we talk about securing our items and making sure that our items are safe and that we protect ourselves and things like that. What about what about considering what you're taking on your trip? So in other words, I think what I'm trying to say is, you know, do you take an expensive expensive Apple laptop or do you buy a cheap netbook? You know, could that be part of the things that you should be considering for security? I, I, I totally agree. Um, a lot depends on, on the individual and the type of trip that they want to have and what they want out of their trip. You know, you meet some people who are out there and the reason that they're traveling is because they want to make a film and therefore they've got to have decent IT equipment with them. Um, other people, well, they've always had um, a decent laptop and it's what they've got. So that's what they go traveling with rather than buy something new. They'd rather use the money, um, the equivalent money to, to put some um, gas in the tank. Um, but I write uh, a paper journal because that gives me the facility, the opportunity when I'm in public, either standing in a queue in the post office or the supermarket or sitting on the edge of a, a market square or whatever else it may be, to just be very discreetly making notes. If I get a laptop out, then I'm raising attention. Hey, look at me. I've got, I've got wealth. Um, so I try not to do those sorts of things. And that brings to mind the motorcycle itself. Do you tend to think that way as well when you're packing your bike? I tend only to take on my bike the things that I really know I'm going to need. Um, mostly they're um, older and beat up things. I don't often travel with new things because if I've got something that still works particularly well, then why do I need something new? Again, I'd rather put the money um, that I could be spending into the gas tank. Um, so, And I think, you know, part of... of of traveling safely and securely is is not covering yourself in what can be considered to be bling. And there's no doubt that if you're traveling in developing world countries, you're a wealthy person. But, well, why wear the equivalent of a Rolex watch um, if you can be walking around with a, a $10 whatever from the local market that does the job just as well? Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I was going to say, do you think you're more of a target if you do have all the, you know, the so-called bling, you're, you're riding the, the brightly colored bike? And that's what I was sort of asking when I was saying about the way you pack your bike. I mean, you know, do you think about it and do you put your, your more expensive things, maybe just tucked out of sight, that sort of thing? Maybe does that come into your thought process? And if you are all blinged out, do you think that you're at higher risk? I think you're certainly making yourself look as if you have got significantly more wealth. Um, if you have got um, Posh and Puck a new kit <laughs> don't laugh at me but, but um, I got hold of a, um, a nice Gore-Tex jacket and the first thing I did was um, before going off on a trip was to roll around on the ground on it so that it started looking a bit muddy and scruffy um, just because I felt less posh wearing it <laughs> Did you get a photo of that? 
No, I didn't, but I should have done. Next time I get a new jacket, I'll take one and send it to you. <laughs> and of course, anybody who's selling Gore-Tex would probably just slap their forehead and go, Sam, you don't want to do that with a Gore-Tex jacket. Um, I, when, when, we, when you said to me, come on, let's talk about um, bike luggage and, and safety, I sat down and I thought about um, the three different types of environments or situations in the day where you might have to be aware of it. So I made one or two um, notes about it. Well, I split it down into three categories. The first is daytime parking. The second is nighttime city parking. And um, the third was nighttime bush parking. Because those are the three, the three environments that really you're going to find yourself parking up. Um, and for any time, do you need to have an alarm on your motorcycle? Well, I don't bother because... Um, I've traveled with too many people who um, at three o'clock in the morning, they're drawing attention to the fact that there's an expensive motorcycle because the alarm's going off and annoying the living daylights out of everybody. Um, so I've, I've never used an alarm. But what I do use um, are two different types of locks. I have a D-lock, which um, fits through the, um, the rear suspension and the frame. But I also use a cable lock so that I can lock the bike to a tree or to a lamppost or something like that. And with those two things, I'm normally feeling fairly safe. But I do um, use um, a couple of other different locks. Um, I don't know whether you've been into a hardware shop or into um, a rigging shop uh, in, a, in a marina or something like that, but you can get some fairly thin wire that's plastic covered um, and you can get some grommets so that you can make loops. And what I tend to do is I'll make lengths of these, which I'll just thread through the loose and soft luggage that I've got strapped onto the back of the bike and I'll lock that onto the bike with um, uh, some small padlocks. Now, anybody who's got a decent set of bolt cutters or, or can either cut through the padlock or can cut through the wire. But um, it's a, a lot of the thefts I think that you're at risk of are not the hardcore villains who are walking around with bolt cutters, but the opportunists. And just by making it um, more difficult for somebody to rip something off the back of the bike with a you know a sharp knife to cut a strap or something, um, I think that you keep yourself um, a lot safer. I had a conversation with Chris Scott. Um, you know Chris who wrote um, Adventure Motorcycle um, Handbook? Yep. Chris was heading down into Morocco one time and he parked his bike on the ferry, as you do, with all his kit strapped on the back. And when he got back down to the bike, um, when they arrived in Morocco, a whole load of his kit had been um, pinched off the back of the bike. And we were saying, you know, if he'd had just basic um, metal ca plastic covered cables, um, his stuff probably wouldn't have got nicked because the opportunists would have been put off. Yeah, that's that's what I often refer to as the honest thief. You know, they're they're sort of a, I guess, a, maybe a lower end thief, and like you say, opportunistic. And and I do the same thing. I have a, a couple of small cables that I have uh, made up just for the the same purpose, and that I run through my soft luggage. And mm -hmm. and I've had people say to me, "Well, that's kind of silly because all you have to do is cut the bag." Well, it's not the idea so much that it's it's definitely going to secure it. It just makes it so that it's just not quite as easy to grab and run. You you once yeah. you introduce something that makes it a little more complicated, complicated every time you make it complicated it becomes a deterrent and and you'll never you'll never deter it completely because i mean let's face it people pick motorcycles up even cut chains and cables and all sorts of things and take them but i think that every little step that we do is is just another little deterrent another little notch 
I, I, that's exactly my attitude. And, you know, there are things around. There's a company called PackSafe that makes wire mesh luggage. And I was looking at something just this morning, funnily enough. It's um, a chap who's made something called KitSafe. And I rather like the look of this. And I said to him, um, so what level of security is on this? Because he's talking about paddling, locking it on, onto the bike. And the idea of it is that you're traveling in a hot place and it gives you somewhere that you can take off your bike jacket, your helmet, your hot boots, um, your hot bike trousers, slip on a pair of shorts and your, and your flip-flops, um, yet leave your stuff strapped to the back of the bike and, and safe. I said to him, so is this full of mesh? Because that's going to make it really heavy. And he said, no, it's just made out of two layers of military-grade ballistic nylon. And I said, what on earth is that? And he said, well, this stuff's tough enough that you'd need a really, really sharp knife and um, a cutting board with a considerable amount of pressure to be able to cut through it. And I thought, oh, well, that sounds quite interesting. So um, I'm going to see if I can get hold of something like that just so that I can have a look, you know, serious look at it. That's interesting because it's another step. So somebody could try to cut that. And once they're going to have difficulty with it, I mean, who wants to hang around and think of a different way that they're going to try and break something? Probably not very many. Yep. No, absolutely. Do you know, one of the best, best possible things as far as daytime parking, or even actually, you know, nighttime parking, is um, Harry Potter's invisibility cloak. Have you ever tried one of those? (laughs) Well, I think I know where you're going with this, but, but I'll have to say, no, I have not. I was introduced to this in in India by um, another traveler called Mark Manley. Um, Mark had been told about it by um, David and Emmy Woodburn when he met them in Pakistan. David and Emmy were spending 10 years um, traveling around the world with their daughter Amy in a sidecar. And um, an invisibility cloak is basically just a bike cover. Um, you plonk it on and in countries like Pakistan and India and various places in Africa I've used it too um, you just plonk this over and all of a sudden your your bike goes from being something that everybody wants to to twiddle knobs with and sit on and all that sort of thing to just a, an island of something that people are just walking on past uh, and I've been amazed at how well this works it's a real out of sight out of mind type of thing I discovered the same thing traveling back and forth across our country, Canada, and and I've done it a lot. And I noticed that when I would go by a hotel, the motorcycles catch my eye. And what it would be is it'd be a row of bikes and you'd have cover, 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 and bike. And I'd say, oh, look at that that bike. Somebody's riding, you know, the the Triumph. And, and, oh, look look at that one over there. But the ones that were covered, I just went over so fast. And then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. it occurred to me after a while. I was thinking, you know, that's amazing because I have no idea how good that bike was. And not that I'm interested in doing anything, but it was for me, it was just grabbing my attention. I thought, well, if it grabs my attention like like that. If mm. I was a thief looking to do something, it's probably the exact same thing. You're looking for easy, and, and it probably goes back to what we've just been saying too. It's another step, isn't it? Another thing that just makes it a little, another hurdle. Yep. Yep. And I bet J.K. Rowling had no idea that she was going to be talking motorcycle covers as a result of her books. Well, I'll have to get her on the show. And, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> Sam, let's go back to what you were saying, because I think that's great. The daytime parking, nighttime parking, and nighttime bush parking. So for daytime parking, what's the approach? I think park in obvious places. You've obviously got to use your common sense, same as you would do um, anywhere, in that if it looks like a dodgy area, then don't park there. 
Um, other than that, park somewhere where it's in full visibility, stick your cover over the top of it, and the chances are you'll be, it, it'll be absolutely safe. And some people pay kids to watch after their bikes um, when they're in developing world countries. Central America, for example, and some places in South America. I've never really felt the need to do that, and so I never have done. I suppose if the kids were being particularly pushy, then perhaps I might have felt, well, yeah, actually, I'm going to give somebody a few bucks just to keep an eye on my bike, because actually, if I don't, then maybe I'm opening myself up to trouble by not doing so. Um, but I've never been in a position where I've had to. So the, the key for me is always leave my bike parked somewhere in full visibility during the daytime if I can't get it straight off the road and into a hotel. Um, and nighttime city parking, I think there are, there are a series of things that, that help keep you safe there. And the first one is never arrive looking for a hotel late in the day. Um, your options for hotels are really cut dramatically because, of course, the more people that are looking for somewhere, the cheaper places go earlier and so do the ones that have parking. So you can end up finding yeah, a hotel that you can afford, but it's got no parking. And I, I really believe that street parking isn't a good idea. It's this out of sight, out of mind um, business again. And if you've left your bike on the street, well, it's certainly out of your sight, but it's not going to be out of your mind because you're going to be lying in bed fretting about it. Now, um, now I really like this. Hang on, Sam. I really like this because what you're really saying here is that this has almost nothing to do with the, the actual bike security itself. It's the planning process. So you're, you're saying, and I think it's a very valid point, and so I want to emphasize it, um, that not leaving, finding a hotel to the last minute is really a step in safety. And, and that's very important. I think the same would go for campsites as well because to to locate a good campsite and to make sure you're tucked out of the way and you're out of sight and all those other things you want to do it goes back to getting to your campsite or finding your place to stay early because a lot of people i think leave it to the last minute I, I couldn't agree more with you. And, you know, arriving somewhere earlier in the day makes infinite sense and in so many ways. You know, it, it allows you to explore where you are in daylight. And that cuts down dramatically straight away um, the risk factor to you. It means that you can hunt out where the markets are and you can bargain for your food in daylight because it's safe for you to do that. You can do your banking in daylight. You can hunt out the cheap restaurants in daylight. And so it goes on. The advantages of arriving somewhere early in the day uh, are just massive when you're on the road. Keep you safe and save you an awful lot of money. And it's almost like when you when you're sitting in a, a coffee shop or a store or something like that. Do you ever get that feeling when you're when you're sitting there and the new customer comes in, everyone sort of looks at the new customer, you can see because you know what it feels like, they feel a little bit uncomfortable. And somehow because you're there, you're established and you're somewhat more comfortable. And it's certainly uh, I think important to to be in that comfortable position before dark comes because nighttime opens up opportunities for the people that are looking for trouble. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, completely agree. And do you know, but it, it, you do get to the stage where something's gone wrong during the day and all of a sudden you find that you've arrived in a town and all the end of the day buses and trains have come in so the cheapy hotels are full um, or other people have beaten you to the ones with, with parking spots. And then you really have to take whatever you can get. But I found in just about every country I've ever found myself in this situation that a hotelier or a restaurateur is only too keen 
um, to, to, to find a way to help you. They'll know somebody who's got a garage that you can put your bike into, or they'll allow you to put your bike in the hotel reception or in the restaurant or when the restaurant closes down at nighttime, all those sorts of things. Um, these guys, they want you to stay in the hotel. So they're going to do everything they can to help you find somewhere. I, I, I do tend to feel a little bit more uncomfortable when a hotel says, oh, well, there's a, a secure parking and you pay a man and it's a kilometer away. And, and I always feel, mm, I'm not sure about this because that's a little bit further away from my bike that I really want to be. Um, the couple of times I've had to do it, though, it's been absolutely fine. And this is how the security guard earns his living, by keeping ve people's vehicles safe. So it's only my paranoia, probably, that's got in the way. But, um, yeah, um, the hotels, they want the business. They want your business. So um, they'll help you find somewhere um, pretty darn quickly. I mean, in Vietnam, there was one place where the, the shop owner next door to the hotel said, oh, yes, mister, you put your bike in my shop. We close up 10 o'clock tonight. No problem. And that's what we did. We put the bike inside his shop. So there it was, surrounded by all this glittery furniture and mer other merchandise. Um, and no, I didn't take a photograph. What a stupid idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and we, I guess we could look at this like like an onion, and it's got all its own layers, or all the layers that you put into it. And so every little layer of security you add to it, whether it be pre-planning, whether it be your cover, whether it be your, your cable, probably any one individually is just a thin layer. But all of them put together, then you all of a sudden have something that's, uh, that's secure. Oh, absolutely right. It, it's a jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? Um, do you know when my favourite um, nighttime security for my bike story um, involved an old man, and I, I was in Kenya and um, I'd, I'd sort of pulled up at this hotel about three o'clock in the afternoon. It was a small town, and there was only one hotel, and this place was beaten up as anything, and the walls were made out of mud brick and old bits of breeze, you know, concrete breeze block and rusted old um, iron roof, and the walls around the courtyard um, were made of bits of old stick and beaten out oil drum and so on. There were goats and snotty-nosed children wandering around, and it was all dust and, and no asphalt or anything like that. And I sort of looked at this place and thought, right, okay, well... Um, it doesn't look as if it's going to have um, any more welcome guests and bed bugs, but hey, it's got a courtyard. So let's go and see if I can book in. And I did. And the room was just as I thought it was going to be, um, extremely rough. But that didn't matter because I'd got my bike off the street. When I went back out to the bike um, a little while later, there was an old man standing looking at the bike. And um, he said, excuse me, mister, is this yours? And I said, well, yes. May I touch it? Well, of course you can. And the guy then stroked the back of my bike, and it was just a delight to see. <laughs> and then he said very proudly, pulling himself up to his full height, I, sir, am the night watchman. I will take very good care of your bicycle overnight. Um, and, yeah, he called it bicycle, which made me laugh. Um, anyway, when I went to bed that night, I looked out of the window and I could see my bike in the courtyard and there he was sitting on the back of my motorcycle um, with a bow and arrow in his hands doing radar sweeps across the courtyard. I couldn't have wished for better. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Well, we've talked about the, the, the parking it. We've talked about covering it. Um, what about a cable or chain? Are you doing that when you're in the city or, or in a, a built up area? Yeah, if I can find anything to lock my bike to, then I do always. I'll always put the D-lock on and I'll always lock it to a tree or a lamppost. It's 
But you know, in most countries, um, particularly developing world countries, what are people going to do with a big bike like yours anyway? Um, if you're on a small bike, then you are more vulnerable because um, the chances are the locals will be able to um, find spares and things like that. So you do run the risk more of having a smaller bike nicked. But securing it to something is probably very wise because um, from what I've seen so far and what I've read so far is, is most of the bike thefts are, they're actually picking them up, carrying them mm -hmm. over and putting them into a pickup and driving it away. Yeah. And that happens with, um, I think, the greater percentage of thefts that seem to be happening in the UK, for example. There'll be a crew and they'll have a, um, a van or a truck or whatever, and they'll just come out and pick your bike up and carry it. Well, before we talk about nighttime bush parking, which I think is really important, let me ask you about, do you do any special things with your bike so that it can't be started? Or, or maybe that's not a fear. Maybe, maybe uh, the thought process of somebody getting your bike, starting it and riding away is not valid. But do you do any special switches or valves to shut off your fuel, anything like that? No, I don't. Not, not a thing. Um, just make sure the bike steering head lock and the two locks that I've talked about are on it and um, turn the petrol off and... Yeah, go and do whatever I need to do. There was a video circulating when you mentioned about the steering headlock. There was a video circulating on the internet that I saw, and it really it shocked me. Kind of startled me a little bit, uh, worried me somewhat. The thief would run up to the bike. They would reach underneath, and I assume they're working with bikes they know. They pull off the ignition switch, and, the, and these bikes were on the side anyway. They would they would start it in seconds, and then they would get on the bike, perch themselves on the bike, put their foot on the handlebar, and push hard. And you'd see it all of a sudden snap as they snap the pin off. Mm-hmm. It just shocked me to think that it was that easy for them. Now, it may not be on more expensive bikes or bigger bikes. I don't know. There's an awful lot of ingenuity. And, you know, if somebody really, really wants to take your bike, then they're probably going to do it. But that's why I keep saying, in the end, the chance of it happening, so long as you're using common sense and you're putting all of these stumbling blocks in people's way, the chance of it happening are fairly small. You can't get insurance for theft when you're traveling, can you? Not to my knowledge. Let's talk about the, the bush parking. So, I mean, this is done for a lot of us love to camp. Um, and it's also the most economical thing to do. So it's, um, it, it's attractive for that. What sort of things do you do to secure when you're bush parking? Okay. Well, the first thing is I follow the two, um, the two turns rule. And that is if I'm um, trundling along, I'm in a fairly remote area. Um, and it's getting towards the middle of the afternoon, then I'm looking for somewhere that um, I can um, bush camp for the night. And the first turn is uh, finding a road that heads off um, into somewhere that looks reasonably remote um, and doesn't look particularly well used. I'll go down that until I find another turning off that road, um, which looks even less well used. And then I'll go down that until I can find myself somewhere that I can tuck myself away um, out of sight. So the two, um, two turns um, rule, um, that's always worked for me. I've always found somewhere. And it, it's, it's really sort of taking yourself by two degrees off the beaten track. When I found somewhere that I think I can get reasonably out of sight, then I make sure that anything that's sh shiny is covered up. So I'll cover up the mirrors, I'll cover up the reflectors, that sort of thing, because what I don't want is anything reflecting off those um, who, who just happen to go past with headlights or whatever um, once I'm in my tent and asleep. Um, and I'll usually hang something that rattles on my bike so that if anybody is poking around, then the chances are they'll knock it and I'll be aware of it. 
but um, I've never ever had somebody fiddle with my bike when I've been um, bush camping. I have woken up in the morning and um, found somebody standing outside my tent. There was one guy, Maasai warrior. Um, and I had no idea he was there. I just pulled out the front, the zip of the front of my tent, and there was this fully dressed Maasai warrior in all the regalia, and he was just standing, looking at me. Um, I nodded at him. He nodded at me, and he left. He was just wanting to see who was part, who was camping in his back garden. <laughs> not back garden, but you know what I mean. Bearing that in mind, I think it also fits in with with not leaving any kit lying around when you're bush camping. Um, so anybody who does stumble across you or, or you know, just simply discover you, there's nothing that they can nick. So if you've got things locked down, and again, this is where your bike cover helps. Having one that's um, fairly dark and fairly sort of ordinary color um, helps. I know people that use camouflage um, bike covers, but um, I don't like those because then when I'm using mine to park on the street, it stands out rather than just being something that blends in. So I just tend to use something that's um, fairly nondescript in, in color. And in a, a security note that doesn't involve humans, um, the other thing is with the cleaning up your, your camp is you know, not attracting animals because um, that'll certainly happen. And um, that's something you, you definitely don't want is to wake up in the morning and find out that your, your bags have been ripped open or gone through by, uh, certainly in bear country. Um, yeah something like that. And, and in any well-used campsites, if you're, going, if you're camping at spots that are well-used, often mice are a real problem. Mm -hmm. I always hang my food up um, if I'm in bear country or um, raccoon country even, because I've had um, raccoon attacks in the past. Um, I always hang my, my food up. It um, makes no sense to do anything else. Um, and uh, yeah, when you're bush camping, only leave your tire tracks behind. So you've covered your bike up. Um, mm. And are you locking it when you're bush camping? Yeah, of course. So yeah, absolutely. You're chaining it to a tree or something? If I can, yes. That's that's wise. Um, it may be overkill, um, but at the same time, I want to be able to crawl into my tent with as much peace of mind as I possibly can. And knowing that I've locked everything, I've, I've locked the bike as, as, as well as I can, I've covered everything up so she's as nondescript as she possibly can be, then um, I'm going to go and I'm going to get a good night's sleep because I know I've done the best that I can. If I haven't, then I'm going to be lying there thinking, oh, you should have done that. Um, and yeah, that doesn't help with good night's sleep. So is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you think is, is important for bike security? Yeah, don't be afraid of brothels. Sorry? Yeah, you heard me. Don't be afraid of brothels. <laughs> <laughs> no, Sam, we're, we're talking about bike security. I'm just going to pull you, pull you back to the subject. <laughs> um, I'm talking places to stay. You know, I've, I've pulled into some towns and villages and all of the hotels have been full. It's just been the way it is. There's been a fiesta and that sort of thing going on. Um, and I've, I've approached schools and fire brigades and even the police looking for somewhere to stay. And mostly and the people who are associated with those organizations know of somewhere um, safe and secure for you to park your bike and for you to stay people say what you go to the police and i said well why not in most countries in this world the police aren't villains they're just doing the best they can um and they want to make you welcome like everybody else does um but um I mentioned brothels because actually brothels have some of the most secure parking that you can ever get particularly in Latin American countries 
they've got the courtyards where you can put your vehicle out of sight of anybody else and they tend to be on the outskirts of cities so they're relatively easy to find and um, yeah you may get a few um, eyebrows raised when you say oh yes I'll be wanting this one for at least 12 hours please because you'll get this huge reputation for being somebody who's incredibly machismo um, <laughs> but actually all you want is safe bike parking and they're fine with that that you don't have to be a customer to to rent a room from them no, and normally you're good entertainment value for them. You're just somebody different to the usual people who are going through. A burger and I stayed in a brothel for almost a week in um, Colombia because her bike broke down literally just outside the brothel. And we didn't realize it was a brothel to, to begin with. But um, within a few hours of watching um, very weary looking men and um, rather sort of um, self-satisfied women counting money, walking out of rooms, we realized where we were staying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, there's also ingenuity. I stayed for a while with a chap um, in Mombasa and he had a fairly lightweight bike and none of the cheap hotels had bike parking space. So um, with permission of the hotel, we picked his bike up between the two of us and we carried it up to the roof. Nearly killed me doing it, but once the bike was up there, um, it was safe anything. And the owners were, well, yeah, why not? Um, the hotel was full, by the way, so both of us had dome tents. The roof um, was flat on this hotel, so there we were, camping up on the rooftop with our, our dome tents and his motorcycle. Of course, they were just making extra money. Um, and we were novelty value for them. So, yeah, they were quite happy. It's good. Cheap. Well, that's good. I, th I think we've covered um, bike security really well here. That's uh, and, I, and I like the fact that you brought up the daytime parking, the nighttime parking, the nighttime bush parking, because that, that really does wrap it up. And um, if uh, if people um, make sure they do, you know, think about it in layers and, and think about getting all those layers on there. Um, like I say, each in individual one may not be enough to do it, but everything together is certainly going to make you feel a lot more secure. I totally agree. And it really does come down to not sweating about it, using respect and common sense between those two things. It's amazing how safe you can make yourself and your kit. Well, on, a, on another note, since you're on here, Sam, you just uh, returned from a tour in the United States. I did. I've just had an absolute ball in, in um, the southeast of the United States. It's a part of the States that I haven't managed to, to travel in before. And uh, so I was really keen when the opportunity came up. And, mate, I've got to tell you, I've been blown away by the riding there and the hospitality and the history. It's been awesome riding. So you got into places you've never been before. Oh, absolutely. And you know, just the, the, the chunks of American history that I've managed to explore at the Civil War and um, getting into hillbilly country down in, the, um, in West Virginia. And um, you know, I won't mention this on air, of course, but of course, um, one has to test the moonshine, doesn't one? Um, it's rather important. Um, and yeah, just the people I've met. And um, I was very lucky. I managed to link up with four events while I was over. I was doing a presentation at the ADV Moto magazine annual rally, which was great fun. What a, a magic bunch of people went to that. And I, I think one of the things that gave me a big buzz about it was meeting up with so many people who um, I'd met on Facebook and Twitter and on various forums and so on, um, and had been reading my work in ADV Moto for all of the years. So that was, that was a really nice thing to, to have happened. Um, the next event that I went to was Overland Expo, um, Expo East, which was down near Asheville. And I felt so sorry for the organizers. Of course, there was the hurricane bubbling. 
um, along the coast of Florida and the Carolinas. And um, this was right on the edge of it. And I think they had um, five inches of rain in a week um, at the venue, which, well, you can imagine, it was just a quagmire. But um, I tell you what, the people who went... Um, I really enjoyed the so what, let's make it still happen um, attitude that they had. And I thought, yeah, this is overlanding. Um, when the chips are down, it brings out the, the, the best in people. Um, so, yeah, I felt sad for the organizers because of all of that work that went into it, but really chuffed at, at the atmosphere. And I had a lot of fun with that. I was doing a presentation and a series of um, classes and roundtables and so on. So that was fun, sharing the little that I know. Um, the next event was um, Horizons Unlimited North Carolina, and I'm a great fan of Horizons Unlimited. Um, so it was it was good fun to be at that. That was at um, the Iron Horse um, site, down at um, on the Blue Ridge Parkway and Tale of the Dragon. And um, right, that's supposed to be really nice. It's an awesome place. Um, I'd seen photographs of it and thought, well, yeah, that looks all right. Um, but when I got there, I, w I was completely impressed. They've developed a place which has got um, a super atmosphere. Um, it's really nicely put together. And you know the showers work. It's It's got the, the, the bog standard basic things absolutely right. And they, they put on a good spread of food as well. So And the location is absolutely perfect for exploring in the area. Yeah, that's so, called uh, the Iron Horse Motorcycle Lodge. Is that what it is? That's the one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and they've got uh, map rooms set up and the whole bit strictly for motorcycles. Uh, absolutely. Horizons have, have done exactly the right thing by um, picking on there as a venue for their North Carolina event. Um, that worked really, really well. And my last one was at um, Morton's BMW in Fredericksburg for their Oktoberfest. And that was a lot of fun. Just a really nice um, atmosphere there. And I, I met a, a, a lot of very interesting people. Um, so, yeah, with all the riding and everything else that's been going on in between those, I, I've just had an absolute ball. Um, I guess I was about two weeks into the trip and I already realized that the trip was going to be five months too short. <laughs> well, the nice thing is you're, you were actually going from event to event. You rode a motorcycle around, didn't you? I did. Uh, Carl Parker from Adventure Motorcycle Magazine lent me um, what had been um, one of their project bikes, a Kawasaki Versys. And um, I'd heard, you know, sort of um, okay comments about the Verses, but um, what the magazine have done with this bike, I am so impressed. It's an absolute dream to ride. So I was delighted when Carl lent it to me. Um, I wasn't so delighted when um, up on the Blue Ridge Parkway in a sudden storm, I ended up having to dump it on the ground. And I, I'd, as I was going, heading, hitting, hitting the deck, my only thought was not, oh gosh, but oh no, I'm dumping Carl's bike on the ground. I felt so guilty about it. But Carl has been incredibly cool about it. Do you go and set up there and sell the books as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, that was one of the reasons for being over, not only to explore, but also to help spread the word about my books and actually get more copies into people's hands so that they could see whether they like them or not. Um, so I was busy um, shipping boxes of books out to the various different venues. And um, with help from one or two of the people who were at some of the venues, they very kindly, had, if they were there were in a four-wheeled vehicle, they would take what was left over, if anything, onto the next venue for me, which was very nice of them. What are the, the, the four books, Sam? The first book in the series is called Into Africa, and that takes the reader down the eastern side of Africa. 
Um, I'd only been riding a bike for three months when I started, and it was an, uh, that was the year I dis- discovered that I'm a complete disaster magnet. I get shot at and thrown in jail and a 17-bone fracture accident and all sorts of other hoo-ha. But every time something goes wrong, something brilliant happens as a direct result. And by the time I'd made it down to the, um, to the bottom of Africa, I thought, stuff it, this is too much fun, I'm not going home. So I carried on for another seven years and went around the rest of the world. And the four books, um, Under Asian Skies being the next one, then Distant Sons, and finally Tortillas to Totems, take the reader on the eight-year, 200,000-mile trip around the world. So each book takes the reader through a different um, section, a different continent um, of the trip. Uh, I, I've uh, read them all. I, I, I got into the first one and then I devoured them one after the other. The only one I was disappointed in, I might have told you this before, was the last one, Tortillas uh, to Totems, because it felt like the end and I wanted mm-hmm. I wanted another book. And I sort of keep expecting you to, you know, come out with another one. Well, there are a couple of reasons why another book hasn't happened yet. And the first is that when you're an independent publisher and you don't have the might of the big publishing houses behind you as far as publicity and marketing and all of their connections and so on, it's a a really slow, gentle process getting the word out. Mm. And you're working at it all of the time. Um, And to make a living out of um, being a, um, a travel book writer, you have to accept that it's going to be a very slow, gentle process. Um, so that's the first reason I'm still on that, that curve and, um, it's fun though. I'm meeting lots of really interesting people while I'm doing it. And in a way, I'm kind of glad that I'm not with a big publishing house. I may have um, made more money by now, but, um, I'm sure I wouldn't have had as many good experiences. And after all, well, it's a journey, isn't it? So anyway, that's, that's one of the reasons. And another reason is that, um, I was lucky enough to have a kidney transplant. Um, Everything suddenly went pear-shaped with my kidneys. Um, I'd been on the um, organ donor register myself, but never expecting that I would need one. And all of a sudden, um, my kidney function went down to um, just 8% function. And I thought, mate, you are stuffed. Um, Life is going to change completely radically for you now. You're probably never going to have the energy to ride a motorcycle again, let alone do any exploring. Um, that you've spent so much of your life doing. But then I had a huge stroke of luck and had a transplant. And um, things have been settling down. I'm touching wood as I'm saying this. So far, so good. Um, I'm several years down the road from it now. And I'm able to bounce around and do things like this trip that I've just done in the States. Um, As far as um, more developing world countries, that's still a bit of an issue because, you know, you get um, dysentery or something like that. You can't control um, what drugs are actually staying in your system. And um, I kind of like my new plumbing and the possibilities it allows me, so I don't want to do anything to trash it. So um, I'm concentrating on doing the things that I can do rather than the things that I can't. Um, so an- another book, well, that'll wait for the moment. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun still writing and still spreading the word about um, the four books that are out. Well, and just to be clear about Tortillas to Totem, I love the book. I was only very disappointed <laughs> in the fact that at the very end, I realized this is it. You know, and when you really get into reading somebody somebody's stories and you and you like the style of writing and you love the adventure, um, yeah, it's, it's sort of disappointing to get the last one. And, and I think I've, I've been long enough now since I read them. I think I'm about ready to go back and start reading them. But you, you got these on Audible as well. 
Uh, yeah, the first two, um, Into Africa and Under Asian Skies, are in audiobook format. And it was a, a big decision about whether to do it. And it took me a long time to decide because in the early days, well, of course, you bought CDs, didn't you? And the logistics and so on um, were just, and the costs of doing that were just silly money. Um, but then, of course, we've all got used now to downloading music and downloading films and downloading audiobooks and audiobook readers and so on and so on are just so much easier. Um, so we had a go at it. I mean, it was a bit of a nervous thing. Um, is this a, a, a huge financial punt and am I going to make a complete idiot of myself? But hey, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And fortunately, people liked it. But what what I really liked about that was the narrator that you got. Ah. Stop pulling my leg. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it's really something though, Sam, to hear it's you reading it. And, and for those who haven't heard it, it, it's really neat because you actually hear your voice telling the story. And, and, and really, I mean, could anyone tell a story better than, than the writer himself? I personally don't think so. Because when somebody's listening to one of my audiobooks, when I'm afraid, it, it's going to come across in my voice. And when I'm really excited about something or when something really important um, is happening, of course, the person's going to pick up on it. And I think um, a professional narrator who reads lots of books isn't necessarily, however skilled they are, going to pick up on that individual moment from the story quite so well. Um, but of course I'm biased, aren't I? Well, no, a, a prime example is, uh, I think it's long way round they have in audio. Uh, I think it, one of those books anyway, they have an audio and they've, they've got narrators to do it. And you're continually searching when you listen to it to figure out what, what you're really hearing. Cause you're not hearing their voices. You're not, you're not mm. hearing Charlie, um, talk. It, it's somebody else talking and you, and it's, it's another voice and it just, it sort of throws you off. But when you listen to yours, there's something about you, you can just sort of settle into it and, and hear it's your story. I mean, so I really like that. Uh, I think I've been very, very lucky, um, A, that you've just made a comment like that and B, because it reinforces um, the gamble that the recording studio actually took. Um, I had a stroke of luck with them in that the managing director had read Into Africa and really liked it um, and was a motorcyclist. And he said, well, come on then, we'll record the first chapter. And if it sucks, then I'm going to tell you and we won't go any further. But if I like it, then we'll put um, some sections of the first chapter up on um, YouTube and we'll see what the feedback is. And people liked it. And he said, well, OK, then let's get you in into the studio and we'll record the rest. But if at any time I think that this doesn't work, then we'll pull the plug on it and well I couldn't say no could I because all the other studios that I'd approached had said well no way no you, you um, it's hard work reading an audio book you've got to be a professional to be able to do it properly um, but it seems that I have a voice that kind of works for um, reading audio books and well like I said you know I know when I'm scared so the first two are, are inaudible, and, and which actually, by the way, um, if, if you're listening to this right now and you want to get this book, um, you can you can go to um, audible.com forward slash ARR, uh, which is just short for Adventure Ride Radio, because we have a deal with them that if you go to it, we'll get some sort of a, a small kickback. But anyway, so the, those first two books are available. Um, what's the plans? Or are there any for the next two? There are. Yeah, indeed. Um, Distant Suns, the third book in the series. So that's um, Southern Africa and up through South and Central America. I'm back in the studio in the spring to put that into um, an audio book. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it because it's such an interesting process working in a studio. Um, yeah, it's, um, I'm looking forward to doing it and I hope people like this one too. 
Well, we'll have to get an excerpt from you when you when you do that to mm. put it on the show because I think it'd be really interesting for people who haven't heard it or may not have heard it um, to be able to hear a chunk of it. Awesome. That would be great. I'd be honored if you do that. Thank you very much. Well, Sam, it's been fantastic once again. Always good to talk to you and you have great information. You've done an excellent job um, talking about security here. Thanks very much. And uh, of course, we're going to hear from you soon. That's great. Thank you very much, Jim. And um, mate, keep up the good work. Um, Your shows are always an interesting joy to listen to. Cheers. You can find out more about Sam by visiting his website, www.sam-manicom.com. And if you have trouble with that, drop by our website and look at the show notes for this episode. Coming up next, we're going to hear from Grant Johnson, Graham Field, and Shirley and Brian Ricks. But first, I want to talk to you about our latest show sponsor, which is Aerostitch. Now, if you're not familiar with Aerostitch, uh, you've got to go to the website, aerostitch.com, because this is like a, um, well, it's sort of like a toy store for kids. There's just everything under the sun there. But what they're really well known for is their riding gear. And you know that we're very fussy about our advertisers. We won't just take anyone. We only take companies that we believe in and that we want to get behind. And Aerostitch is one of those. I first ordered from Aerostitch some number of years ago. I remember ordering a, a set of front panniers from Aerostitch several years ago and their their brand, Aerostitch brand. And they really stick in my mind, unbox them because I just didn't expect that sort of quality. When I open them up, they're, they're very robust. They use these big wide straps to go across the tank and the straps are use full width Velcro. It looks like a, a real good quality Velcro. And underneath, there's a real soft material, like almost like a furry sort of thing to protect your tanks and make sure these straps don't actually scratch anything that they go across. And they're fully adjusted they go back and forth both ways to bring the bags up higher on the tank or drop them down lower. They're made of a real heavy, well-stitched type of uh, material, and they've got a, a plastic board in the back that hold, help hold the shape of the bag. Well, I have ridden on those bags through all types of weather, from hot to cold to teeming rain, and moreover, I've dropped my bike so many times on those bags, just again and again and again, and they still they hold their shape. They just look like they're a couple of months old rather than being several years old. I mean, they're really tough and well-made. They're not meant to be waterproof, so I line them with a plastic bag, but rarely has any water gotten into them. The bag just doesn't seem to get wet, so they're not designed to be waterproof, but boy, they really are very water-repellent. So it's quality like that that I like to ride with. If you go to their website, um, www.aerostitch.com, and that's spelled A-E-R-O-S-T-I-C-H.com, you'll see they sell loads of bike-related gear. And by the way, that's why they're so good at making this stuff, because they're bikers, they're riders. I mean, these people really ride. As a matter of fact, that's what Aerostitch is about. In their words, making and selling equipment that makes riding anywhere in all weather easier, safer, more comfortable, and more fun. That's their words. But I think what Aerostitch has become well known uh, for over the past 33 years of manufacturing is their riding suits and jackets. They make an incredible one-piece and two-piece jacket and pants sets um, like the R3. The R3 is a full-piece riding suit, amazing quality on all this stuff. In fact, they have this thing they call the Ride More Guarantee. Now get this. If you try any Aerostitch one-piece R3 or their Roadcrafter classic suit for one month and you're not riding more than you did before receiving it, send it back and they'll give you a full refund, no questions asked. 
If you ask me, that's not only confidence in their product, but that's a testament to the fact that they care about riding and getting you out to ride more. Um, I think you can always tell, you know, when you're dealing with people who are riders first or companies that are, are made up of people who are riders first, you can tell by what they focus on. Oh, and I almost forgot. Uh, the Aerostitch catalog. This is a must for every rider. You've got to drop by their website and order the catalog. It's free. You can't go wrong. www.aerostitch.com. And make sure that when you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. We're really stoked to have them as a, a new sponsor to the show. That's aerostitch.com. So now we're going to get back to talking a little bit more about bike security. I wanted to talk to Grant Johnson. You know Grant. He's from Horizons Unlimited. Guy's got a lot of experience with travel, and he deals with it all the time. He's seeing what's on the forums, his forums, and what people are saying and the problems they're having, which is interesting because there's probably a lot less theft for motorcycles and our motorcycle gear than what we might think before we head out on a trip. So let's get Grant's take on it. Grant, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for having me back, Jim. It's good to be back and talk to everybody. You have been globe-trotting like crazy lately. Yeah, we've been around a fair bit. Uh, just got back from Australia, six weeks. We did three events, one in Queensland, Perth, and in Victoria. And we've been back for about four days. And on Sunday, we head off to South Africa for the second South Africa Travelers Meeting on November 12. So you only came home for four days, just enough to feed the cat and that's it? Well, we're here for nine days. We're feeding the birds, not the cat. <laughs> no cat would have us. We're not well, here enough. If you had the cat, you wouldn't have the birds, I guess. That's right. <laughs> well, I want to talk to you about bike security, um, different ideas on keeping our bike secure. And we've talked about everything so far from um, planning how you're going to enter a community, a town, a city, um, and, and picking uh, your time and, and where you're going to stay to keep your bike secure, right on down to the, the hardware of it, the, um, the lock and chain. So, so let's start with overall first, our, our bike thing. Is there any way that you look at packing your bike or, or setting your bike up um, and where you take security into mind? Yes and no. Uh, you would like to be able to have everything absolutely secure and all locked up, but the reality is with any modern lock, if somebody comes along with a crowbar or even a big screwdriver, they're going to be able to bust into it. And people are always saying, well, soft bags, they're no good because you can just cut them. But I think the reality that a lot of people seem to miss is that actual theft from bikes is not a huge issue. I've had loads and loads and loads of people say they never had any issues whatsoever. Soft bags? Yeah, nobody ever touched it. Um, hard bags? No, nobody ever touched it. I mean, there are issues. Things do happen occasionally. Um, so it's, it's nothing's ever bulletproof. But I think one of the important things is if there is nothing super valuable like your camera and your laptop left behind, in your, in your bike when you leave it overnight, it's not that big an issue. And uh, we generally find that when you come into any accommodation of any kind, they're usually very good about helping you find a place that's safe and secure for your bike. Well, Grant, that, that brings up a, an interesting thing that I, I sort of thought of when I was talking with Sam Manicom about this, was thinking, do you think that, that part of being secure on your bike is thinking about the stuff you're taking? In other words, if you ride around with a bunch of bling or very expensive stuff, um, you know, does, does it make it so that you're, I don't know, maybe you're more paranoid about it. Maybe, you're, you know, it's a bigger loss, obviously, if you get it stolen. So maybe if you can mitigate that stuff to begin with, the, the expensive stuff, then it sort of lessens your fear of, of being secure. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Um, 
if you go with the idea that everything is disposable and if it disappears, it's no big deal, then you're going to be a lot less worried about it. And that is going to make you enjoy yourself a lot more and you won't mind leaving the bike for a few minutes. It's not a big deal to run into a restaurant. Whereas if you've got a a ton of expensive equipment and it looks like you've got a ton of expensive equipment because your bike is new and shiny and dripping with all kinds of goodies. Um, you feel like a target and maybe you are. So are there things that you would do if you're going to pack up right now and head out uh, on a long trip? Are there things that you would do with your bike or not do for that matter um, to avoid that look of the bling? Mostly, don't keep it shiny. <laughs> you find a lot of travelers learn that if your bike is dirty and grotty and covered in muck all the time, it's much less of a target. Um, and having said that, too, there's a lot of people that travel on older bikes because if you're on an old ratty bike or a small bike, guess what? You're not a big target. If you've got the latest brand new shiny whiz-bang adventure bike, yep, you're clearly the guy that's got some money. I remember pulling into um, a small town in, I think it was Malawi. And when I say small town, I mean like 10 huts. And there was actually a guy standing there uh, in front of your old-fashioned kid's lemonade stand, literally. And he's got half a dozen bottles of various kinds of drink, soft drinks there. And that was his store. That was it. And we pulled up and thought, we're really dry. It'd be nice to get something and talk to this guy. And it was interesting. And we ended up talking to the guy and everything was great. And then a, a brand new shiny Land Rover pulled up across the street. And all the people that gathered around us and were talking to us just looked at them. And, you know, there was this look. Oh, yeah. Him. <laughs> it's kind of a... It, this is the guy over there has money and us on the old dirty motorcycle don't have money. And it was kind of a nice feeling to feel that we weren't a target, but we were somebody that was worth talking to. And we found that people talk to us more. It makes me wonder whether whether thieves often feel um, sort of less remorse stealing from the rich than they do from maybe who somebody who's not so rich. Absolutely. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Um, and especially when you think about in most of these countries where there is some concern about theft, it's not so much that these are bad guys. It's these are people that are trying to feed their family. So there's a difference in attitude and a, and a different way of thinking about it. Um, so, yeah, I think if, if you look expensive and flashy, you look like you've got some stuff and you look like you could afford to lose something so nobody feels bad about it. Mm -hmm. So when you're entering a town, what are some things that you think of right off the bat as far as security? We don't think that much about security other than we kind of pay attention to where the hotel is. And in the center of town next to the bus station is a bad place. And that's always the one that's recommended by, um, what do you call it, uh, Lonely Planet. And that's where all the backpackers hang out. And that's where there's lots of theft risk. Whereas if you're in a smaller hotel on the edge of town, something that's more catering to locals instead of the tourists, you're much less risk, I think. And what about the bike itself then to secure it? What, what sort of methods are you using? Uh, we carried a cable lock, which we locked. Uh, when we first started off, we used an alarm system. And that became kind of a joke, we learned. In Central America, the kids know about alarms. And they, I remember them, I remember myself discovering that they really understood alarms. And it became a game called See the Gringo Run. And that's played very simply. You got your bike parked on the street. 
the alarm's on and the kids go out and they go and they're looking at it and all of a sudden the alarm goes off and they all jump and the gringo comes running down, nothing going on, turns the alarm off, goes back up and the kids say, oh, this looks like fun and they jiggle the bike and the alarm goes off again, see the gringo run. It's great fun for all afternoon. <laughs> until you get tired of it and turn the alarm off, at which point it's not doing any good. <laughs> and of course, so, in North America, when a car alarm goes off, no one even looks. No, they ignore it. So an alarm has very little use. The only alarm that I think that's of any use is one that pages you silently, because otherwise it's just pointless. And it's going to be see the gringo run anyway. So I, I gave up on alarms. We don't have one on the bike now. Um, it was just was pointless. Put a good lock on it and put it somewhere safe and don't worry about it. So you're going to go into your hotel. What about the times where you can't find a place inside to park your bike? Well, you may not be able to find a place inside, but the hotel manager always has a cousin or a friend or somebody that has some safe parking space. We've parked our bike in all kinds of places. I remember parking at one place in South America. It was just a big lot. But there are two very large German Shepherds in the lot. It was very safe. <laughs> the first question we ask is, where can we park the bike? And they'll always come up with something. If they don't have a spot themselves, they know somebody. And they really don't want you to have your bike stolen. They don't want you to have any issues because that reflects badly on them. And they're nice people. They don't want you to have a problem. They want you to be happy and enjoy their hotel. And talk and tell your friends about it you know, that so they're always very good i've never ever had anybody say well i'm parking on the street i don't care kind of attitude never what about luggage do you have tips for for people for luggage for security and and, and i know people are riding with with hard luggage and soft luggage and they both have their their own unique qualities about them that make them either easier or harder to steal I think the biggest thing is don't leave a lot of stuff in your saddlebags when you go into a hotel. We have our set up so that it's literally open the lid, grab a handful. Of, we've got all ours in a, in a bag, one bag. You just pick out the bag, walk away. That's it. Saddlebag's empty. There's nothing left. Do you lock it closed or do you leave it open? I've dithered over that. <laughs> I think I, as a general rule, if it's empty, I'll leave it open because otherwise they're just going to bust the lock. Having said that, people have been known to have the saddlebag locked, or unlocked, I should say, and somebody busts the lock because they don't know it's unlocked, or they don't even know how to unlock it, or to open it, how the latch works. So you can never be sure. Um, Greg Frazier told me about an incident he had. He was in a campground in Tunisia, and, you know, it was Tunisia, I think, and he thought his stuff had been, his saddlebags had been gone through overnight and he'd left stuff in there. And uh, next morning he, he decided, hmm, somebody's been in this bag. So he put a rat trap inside and set it. When he checked out the next day, having heard a snap in the middle of the night, there was the manager with bandages on his fingers. Oh. The main thing I think is don't be paranoid, just be sensible and don't do dumb stuff. Um, the, in all our travels, the only times, the, we only had two issues with the bike. One was in the UK in a big city and somebody opened up the soft fairing pockets, looked inside and tossed out a rag and a little bottle WD-40 and that kind of thing and just tossed it on the ground. Didn't find anything. That was it. And the other one was in Mexico City. I had a stick on with Velcro clock on the dash 
and somebody decided that they wanted it more than I did. And that was our only issues we've ever had with the bike for security, ever. I'm glad you said don't be paranoid because this sort of talk can make people start to to get a little paranoid. But um, I think yeah. it's pretty clear, even as we speak about this, that that you um, that the chances are very low, and and you just be diligent, and likely everything's going to be fine. Yeah, if think about it as you're you're going downtown in your own city, and it's not the great area. What would you do? And think the same way, and don't don't go crazy about it. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing, too, might also be think of lesser expensive equipment if you think there's a chance of loss. Yeah, absolutely. Either put it in a backpack and carry it or don't, don't take it in the first place. If you have a whole bunch of expensive equipment sitting in the, in the bike at all times, then that's just, you're just begging for it. And when it happens, it's going to be a major disaster for you. And you're going to be paranoid all the time. And you're going to be missing out on a lot of things because you're afraid to leave the bike. Don't take that much stuff. Just keep it simple. And of course, that was Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, and that's horizonsunlimited.com. And now for another perspective from another world traveler, Graham Field. So, Graham, while you're traveling um, on one of your adventures that you end up ultimately writing about, what are you doing for security? I, I mean, and before I, I let you answer that, I know I've read in your books, there's times where you've left your par- your bike parked on a street and walked away, uh, etc. What sort of things do you take into mind for security? Well, what I learned when I did my first trip uh, to Mongolia, I had you, you load up your bike, you do test ride after test ride, all these shakedowns to make sure it's okay, and you try and keep everything as light as you can. And then just before you leave, you put a bloody great padlock and chain on it, which is so heavy. And ultimately, if if somebody wants your bike, they're going to have it. And what I do now, and this is, is works so well, is I take a bike cover, not a weatherproof bike cover, but just something that you can just sort of shake, balloon out and put down over your bike and then put a bungee across the seat and hold it all down. And they, it's like a cloak of invisibility because our bikes are so attractive with all their buttons and knobs and spare tires on the back and panniers and things bungeed onto panniers. And they do attract a crowd. They attract a lot of unwanted attention. And because especially me, because I travel on my own, I have to go off and find ATMs. I have to leave it unattended when I go into a hotel to see if they've got a room and how much the room is. And that bike cover, it's not small, but it is definitely worth its volume to to be able to just take it, cover up the bike. And there was a, a place in Ankara in uh, Turkey, and I had to stay for five days while I waited for my visas to be ready. And um, I was actually, I didn't realize it initially, but I was staying in a brothel. So it wasn't the best part <laughs> of town. And my bike was chained to some railings outside the brothel. I, I barely saw the girls or the customers because they came late at night when I was trying to sleep, although the doors were banging all night long. And, uh, but Obviously not the best part of town if you if you if you're staying in a whorehouse, but the bike never suffered any problems at all because with that black cover over it, it just didn't entice people. It didn't draw attention. And for me, you know, you you can prevent with disc locks and and padlocks and chains and everything, but ultimately if they don't see it, if you don't attract that attention in the first place, for me the best security is is a big all-encompassing bike cover, a black one. 
I'm so glad you said that first off, because it's interesting that I ask about security. And the first thing that pops into most people's heads, I think, chains, cables, like you said, disc locks, uh, whatever the case is to keep the thing chained up. But really, it's spotting it. It's that whole attraction thing where you walk by. And, and I've done this as well with my bike. I tend to have a nondescript cover that I throw over it. It's not like you don't know it's a motorcycle. It, it just seems to take the interest away, doesn't it? Yeah, because they are. They're wonderful, exciting things, especially when you're riding through countries where people have only got one, two, fives or something. Y- your bike is, is is a huge piece of intrigue. And, and I mean, I've, I've left them before without the cover and you come back and kill switches have been moved, indicators are on, lights switch. Been, you know, over the night, people have been playing and fiddling with it. That's not a huge deal, but that's not where it ends you know once people start wanting to see what's in your tool roll or pinch your sheepskin seat or your air hawk or whatever it is um so yeah if you can just avoid that temptation that attention in the first place i think that's probably the best thing you can do it sort of ups the level of intrusion too doesn't it it makes it like i mean there's one thing to walk up to a bike and, and start touching just like you said there but it's another when you have to lift a cover it's like it's almost like a different person different type of person has to come along Especially when you've got a bungee across the seat and underneath it as well, because you can't even lift it up. You're pushing against a bungee cord. It doesn't want to do. You're really, it's like pushing against a door with a chain on it. You're not meant to be in that position. And you're absolutely right. A different type of person is then going to interfere with it, not your general, your kids and your, and your, general passes by definitely now that's a very good point to, to wrap the bungee around that's something i'll have to add to mine now um what other sort of things do you do for bike security and, and gear for security for that matter i'm a sort of bike nobody wants <laughs> nobody wants my bike it's a crappy old klr it's been around the world um I, I don't do anything else jim uh that's it really i mean i do have a padlock so that it just can't be freely wheeled away that it's uh but but again, if somebody wants it, if, if it only takes a second person and they'll lift it on the back of a pickup truck and the thing is gone. So um, I, if, if, it's, if it is outside and I am a very light sleeper anyway, I try and be in a room where at least the other side of that window is my is my motorcycle. If I'm camping, then it's not really an issue because I, I will hear anybody who tampers with it. Uh, occasionally when you get further east, they'll let you take it into the lobby of a hotel or something like that. But I think it goes back to, to uh, a conversation we'd had about, um, you know, how do you, how do you deal with dangerous situations? It's instinct. You generally know when, when, when you or your motorcycle is in danger and, uh, it's just having that awareness of, of quite where it's parked. Sometimes there's guarded car parks and which are open 24 hours and even though your bike is a long way from where you are it's guarded and you've just got to trust that the guard does his job no switches to to make it so that somebody can't start it or fuel shutoffs or anything like that i did the first time i went to mexico uh the side stand switch on the klr is a is a sort of system that cuts it out so you don't ride off with your side stand switch down it's also one of the first things that people uh bypass on a klr because it always goes wrong and so what i did was use that switch as a i had a switch under the tank and my theory was that if i got stopped by drug cartel i could flick that switch so that even if they were to take my bike from me they would start it they would uh it would start fine they would put it put in the clutch it would be fine they put it in gear and it would die 
because the equivalent of the side stand switch had been engaged. And whenever I thought about it, when I was riding on, oh, what if a drug cartel were to stop me now and hold a gun to my head and I'd fumble underneath the tank and try and find that switch to flick, which would be my little safety system. But um, I, I never got stopped with a gun against my head by drug cartel. And uh, it was a little theory I had, which I never got to use. Uh, so uh, we can't say whether it will work or not. And how many bikes have you had stolen? Uh, just one. You, d- you uh, did have a- one. Oh, I didn't realize you did have one. Yeah, but not not traveling. It was it was a for sale. Uh, it was a shovel head that I had for for sale, and I was absolutely conned by this very clever person who had a who paid with a a so called guaranteed check that turned out to be absolutely fraudulent. Sent a courier down in an unmarked vehicle to take it away, and uh, after I put that check in the bank, three days later I got a phone call saying. Uh, that's a fraudulent check, and that check has been going around buying speedboats and jet skis and all sorts of wonderful pieces of machinery. And uh, sorry, mate, we can't wow. we can't give you the money for it. I've heard of that uh, that scam going on. Generally, when they when you have it advertised in somewhere like eBay or something. Yeah, I mean, this was years ago before eBay, before internet. But yeah, I was well and truly had, and I. I helped somebody load a four and a half thousand pound Harley into the back of a van and he took it away and he had it for free with the documents and the keys. Wow. Any other security tips? Uh, not really. <laughs> the cover, the cover is brilliant. It is, they cost nothing and they work spectacularly. I just, uh, yeah, that's, that's my biggest tip. Okay. That's great, Graham. Thank you very much. Cheers, Jim. Bye. And that was Graham Field. You can find out more about Graham by visiting his website at grahamfield.co.uk. Brian Ricks and Shirley Hardy Ricks. Brian Ricks and his wife, Shirley Hardy Ricks, are world travelers and authors, and they just finished coming back from a trip. They went to Russia and Mongolia in the stands, and I was interviewing them for that. So I asked them what they did for bike security on this trip and how they feel about bike security in general. And this is an excerpt from that interview. We're, we're actually working on an episode on, on bike security, and, and I'm sort of curious, did you do anything special for bike security? Look, not on this trip. On one of the other trips I did with an 1150 GS, I had hidden switches on it everywhere. So if someone took the keys, they could never get the bike started without knowing where that hidden switch was. With this bike, the GS is pretty hard to start without the key anyway because of its electronics. But I had a disc lock and I also carried a a chain lock, a cable lock, I should say, um, that I would leave on uh, wrapped around our luggage on the bike, and over night time, I would run that th- through the um, the um, middle of the hub of the GS through the frame. And if I, there was a solid mounted object somewhere, I'd run it around that. So it was wrapped around the frame of the bike through the back wheel and uh, locked on. And the front wheel had the disc lock on it. But uh, I've got to say. Um, be careful with disc locks because sometimes you forget them and you can ride off and it's rather embarrassing. And I've done that once. <laughs> but, uh, so hang on a second. You rode away and this thing's screaming as, as, <laughs> as you start to roll and then you flop on your side? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was surely wasn't with me. I was away with mates, and uh, uh, yeah, it was my turn to go down to the to the shop, and uh, I forgot all about my dislock. So I did it in front of all my mates who had a lovely laugh. But um, uh, what I do now, Jim, is I have a little bit of electrical tape on the edge of the disc lock, and when I put that disc lock on, I put the electrical tape over the ignition switch. That's that's a good way not to make a fool of yourself again. <laughs> not again. <laughs> so so back to the bike security thing. So did you have any trouble with your bike? Did you ever feel that your bike was threatened or that you, you were concerned about it? No, no. And look, uh, one of the, the main precepts was when we got a room was uh, where can we park the bike where it's secure? And quite often uh, they would uh, open up little garages and lock it away in there. Uh, that was one of the main priorities for us was to make sure the bike was secure. Some of our uh, friends that we met on the road, one guy was camped in Poland, I think it was, Poland, Poland right next to his bike. In a campground. In a campground, uh, asleep with all his gear on the bike, and when he woke up in the morning, his bike was gone. Wow. Lost everything. And that, that was a 1200 GS, a red one, just exactly the same as mine. But that, to do that, they would have to pick it up and carry it away, and I've no doubt they did that. And we, the bike stayed in so many different locations, particularly in South America. They're very obliging. The bike stayed in restaurants, in the foyers of hotels. They'd shift furniture around so we could fit the bike into little little cubby holes. And, um, you know, they, they, they understood completely. And if we'd say, yeah, we need secure parking for the bike, that wasn't a problem for them. You didn't mention a cover. Do you cover the bike? Yeah, yeah, I do. I've got the dirtiest, shittiest <laughs> old-looking bike cover you've ever seen. It's been around the world twice. It's ripped, it's torn, it's got gaffer tape holding it together in places, um, and I put that on it. Um, so, again, it just stops little fingers, and also um, it just makes it that just that little bit harder to, to steal the bike. And that was Brian Ricks and Shirley Hardy Ricks. And you'll hear more from that interview uh, on another episode. But that was what we talked about, about bike security. Now, it's really interesting, you know, because when we started out, when Elizabeth and I started out researching for this episode, I I think in our minds we were going to be looking at, you know, uh, these carbon fiber locks or some sort of, you know, titanium bolt systems, all these things that were really incredible. Everybody were, was going to point us towards, oh, you should check out this and you should check out that. And it turns out that the real common thread is literally made by a thread. It's the cover. It, it costs next to nothing. I mean, you can go out and buy a tarp, you know, at, a, at, at one of the department stores for three or four dollars. And it's probably going to suffice as your major part of security. I mean, you can hear the common thread with, with all these people who know what they're talking about uh, when it comes to keeping their bike secure. That common thread is to keep it covered, that number one thing. Yes, there's lots of other things. And like I already said before, it's it's sort of, I picture it as a layering system. You know, each little thing you do is another layer in the onion that, that makes that core more secure. But it's interesting that that common thing, that, that just keeping your bike covered, out of sight, out of mind. So get out there and get yourself a cheap cover, buy an old cover at a yard sale, you know, one that's just some ratty old piece of junk, and you've got yourself a heck of a security system there. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com.
Sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too, at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Of course, we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. I want to say a special thanks to Elizabeth, our co-producer, who works so hard in the backgrounds, getting everything ready for these episodes. And make sure that when you drop by any of our show sponsors, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. It's their input that helps keep the show on the road. So special thanks to Max BMW, Best Rest Products, and Arrow Stitch. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Day Adventures, this is Stuart Ball. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Happy travels. (laughs) 